Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Under the microscope this week, MRSA and a new way to probe how this bug causes disease. Parasitic worms and why they might hold the key to the allergy treatments of tomorrow and how some viruses ensure that they don't infect the same cell twice by literally bouncing off the surface. It's almost as if the virus infection is marking the newly infected cell as infected and saying to the additional viral particles, go away, there's no point coming here, I'm infected already, you need to go elsewhere. I think that's a line I've used on my kids in the past. Hello, it's Sunday the 18th of March. Welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and also this week is Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello, and we also have news this week of why space travel is bad for your eyesight and why nanoparticles in wastewater could encourage bacteria to breed superbugs. So, if you would like to get in touch with any questions or comments... You can tweet at Naked Scientists, you can comment at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists and you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. Now... DNA sequencing technology is developing at a phenomenal rate. Decoding the genetic sequence of a bacterium now takes just hours and costs a few hundred pounds. Ten years ago, this price tag was in the millions. This means that researchers can now begin to marry up the genetic code of an infecting bacterium with how it causes diseases and what treatments might work best. At Addenbrooke's Hospital here in Cambridge, microbiology consultant Dr Este Torok is using this technique to try and understand more about MRSA, or as it's more formally known, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Hello Este, thanks for coming on the show. Hello Kat. So let's track back a little bit and find out what tests do we currently do when someone has a bacterial infection? Okay, so the current tests that we do are we normally take either a swab or a sample of pus or a sample of tissue from the patient that's put into a little pot or a container, taken to the laboratory where it's streaked out onto an agar plate and then that plate is incubated in an incubator at 37 degrees or whatever for 24 hours and after that we look at the plate to see if there are bugs growing on it. Um, Once we see that there are bugs growing on it, we then have to do further tests that are usually biochemical tests, both to identify the bacterium and also to uh, test it for susceptibility to um, antibiotic drugs. So the whole process um, takes at least 24 hours to culture the bug and then 24 to 48 hours to identify and get the full susceptibility results. So this could be quite crucial if someone's very, very sick, obviously. Absolutely. So when someone comes into hospital and you suspect they have a bacterial infection, you obviously can't wait for the results of the microbiology tests because your patient may not survive 48 to 72 hours. So what we tend to do is give patients empiric antibiotics so we guess what the bug might be and what it should be susceptible to and give them what we think is the the right antibiotic but we don't always get that right. And so why would it be useful to know what's actually in a bacterium's genes? What what sort of genes do affect how bacteria infect us and, and what they do to us? So in terms of the, the, the bacterium, the genetic code will code obviously for, for things like the structure of the bacterium, 
for factors that contribute to their, their pathogenesis, so how they attach to human cells, how they invade human cells. Also, uh, they code for, for toxins that um, can cause detrimental effects to the host cells. Um, and obviously, they can code for antibiotic resistance genes which is obviously a hot topic that we'll come to. So you and, and your team are working out how to do genome sequencing on bacteria. And tell us exactly what sort of technology this is. How, how quick is it to do a whole bacterial genome? So um, we're working, I'm working in Professor Sharon Peacock's group um, at the Department of Medicine. And what we're interested in is to see whether we can bring whole bacterium genome sequencing into the heart of a diagnostic microbiology laboratory. So this is, genome sequencing has been going on, for example, at the Sanger Centre or at reference laboratories, but this has taken quite a long time and cost quite a lot of money in the past. And what we're trying to do is to see if we can take some of the newer machines and if we can use them closer to the patient, basically, in order to inform both clinical care and public health. Now, I've seen some of these little sequences, and they're, they're sort of the size of a printer, a desktop printer. And how much would it cost to sequence an infection, one person's infection, roughly? Um, well, it, it sort of depends. So the, the big sequences that, that are used at the Sanger Institute are Illumina high-seq machines, um, and they're very large, and often when we send samples to them, it can take sort of six to eight weeks for us to get a result, and that's relatively inexpensive, so less than £50 or so for a genome. Um, but obviously you can't wait that long. Mm. Um, with the smaller desktop sequences, or benchtop sequences, I guess you should call them, I mean, they're the size of about a, big, a printer or one of those expensive cappuccino machines. Um, we can get a result in 18 to 24 hours, and the costs are coming down. And uh, I think you'll have to ask the companies how much they're charging, but I would say it's in the hundreds of pounds as opposed to in the thousands or whatever. And this certainly starts to make it seem like something we could do so if you if you could start to bring this into the clinic what would be the benefits of knowing the sequence the genetic sequence of the bacterium that's infecting someone i don't think we'll ever be in a situation where we can sequence every single bug that comes into the laboratory but i think we'll focus on on bugs where for example you think that the patient may be part of an outbreak investigation or where it's important to know um, things about virulence or drug resistance more quickly um, and so you'll need to you know, pick which bugs you do and then and then focus on getting those results out more quickly in order to either determine whether bugs are related or not in the case of outbreak investigation or what antibiotics to use um, in the case of drug resistance, so in the case of surveying, you know, the emergence of drug resistance. And in the news this week, the uh, I believe it was the World Health Organisation was really expressing concern about the rise in antibiotic resistance that we're seeing and or this, this perfect storm that might lie ahead of us as we're using more and more antibiotics to treat people and in food production and these bugs are becoming resistant to it and we're sort of losing out in this genetic arms race. So how can the kind of research that you're doing help to point us towards ways to help to combat this resistance and could you actually use the information you're getting to develop better treatments? Um, yes, because obviously if you have the genetic code of the organism, you have all the information that's available in terms of the antibiotic resistance genes. And so you can then design drugs that can be targeted against those in a way that you can't if you don't have the genetic code. The other thing I think it's important is that it gives you a chance to sort of survey um, the emergence of, for example, new pathogens or more drug-resistant pathogens in, in near real time without having to send off bugs to the reference lab, which can take weeks. And in terms of what you're doing now, this, this is a sort of how long is a piece of string question, but how soon do you think this kind of sequencing 
might start to become more widespread in hospitals across the UK. That's obviously um, the major challenge and certainly that's what our group is working on to see, evaluating some of these new technologies to see if we can use them within a diagnostic microbiology laboratory and obviously develop ways to make them a bit more user-friendly. So, you know, at the moment, um, in order to analyse bacterial genome sequences, you often need a bioinformatician who's very experienced at doing that to give you the results in a way that you can understand. And over time, it is hoped that the machines that come out will have sort of onboard computers that will actually be able to be useful to the practising clinical microbiologist or infectious diseases doctor, who will then be able to understand the data without the need for having a scientist to interpret it for them. So optimistically, I would say sort of five years or so, but uh, I don't really know how, how quickly things will change. Certainly the technology is there, but uh, but the translational aspect may take a bit of time because you obviously have to train, A, a improve the instruments and B, train people to use them. Patients coming into Edinburgh, are they having their bacterial genome sequenced? Um, well, they, they will be. So we're about to start a study based at Edinburgh's, which will involve sequencing all the MRSA bugs that we collect over the course of a, a one-year period from patients admitted to Edinburgh's, and we're also collecting bugs from the east of England and also um, nationally in order to look at the sort of the geography and the diversity of MRSA in the UK and then to look more closely in Edinburgh's at, at transmission of MRSA both within the hospital and between hospitals in the UK. That sounds like a very worthwhile project. I look forward to seeing the results of that. So thank you very much, Este. That's Este Torok from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Thank you, Kat. Now, parasites are organisms that live in or on another organism. They steal nutrients to survive. Nice. But living inside a host species, as many of them do, comes with its own set of problems. Parasites have to find ways to avoid the immune system. And we now know that parts of the immune system whose job it is to get rid of parasites are the same parts that also cause allergies. Dr Edward Fennell from Cambridge University's pathology department works on this and he is with us. So, Ed, what does the immune system actually do to try to get rid of a parasite? Let's start there. Yeah, so parasites are very difficult for the immune system to deal with. Other things, such as viruses and bacteria, are very small, and the normal immune response to those is to send cells along which are actually capable of gobbling them up, and they gobble them up, envelop them, and then drop a load of chemicals on them, and that gets rid of them. With, uh, with parasites, certainly with the parasites we steal, the, the worms, they're large and multicellular, and there's no cell in your body that can come along and actually gobble those up. So It'd be like you trying to engulf a shark. Yeah, or a blue whale, yeah. <laughs> So the body's developed a more recently evolved part of the immune system to fight parasites, and instead of trying to envelop them, it sends along a specialised type of cell which when it encounters a parasite and the parasite's been marked in a way that says this is something to be destroyed by an antibody these cells then release a lot of toxic chemicals onto the parasite which is hopefully what destroys the parasite. But it clearly doesn't work very well because if you look at the world population a very high fraction, we're talking tens of percent, are thought to be carrying parasites, especially worms, at any moment in time. So these parasites are, are obviously pretty resourceful at getting round what the immune system has to throw at them. Yeah, they're very, very good at getting round what the immune system has to throw at them. The process by which the parasites are tagged is using a special antibody called IgE, which recognises special surface structures on the parasite. 
but if it can't see those structures, if the IgE can't bind to those structures, then the cells can't release the chemicals and they can't destroy the parasite. And so the parasites have developed lots of very clever ways of avoiding that process. So the parasite I work on, uh, which is Schistosoma mansoni, which causes schistosomiasis, it's a huge problem. Bilharzia. Bilharzia. Yeah. the other name, yeah. That actually has the adult worms, which live in the bloodstream, so they're exposed to the immune system all the time. They actually have a special outside layer called the tegment, which wraps around them and actually hides the majority of the things that IgE can react against in the worms. And it also then takes in bits of your own blood and coats itself in, this, in your blood. So your, your body's immune system is also very good at not destroying yourself. Um, you tolerise you know, to your own antigens when you're very, very small. So the worms coat themselves in this and protect them. It's a massive game of subterfuge, this, isn't it? it really They're is. disguising They're themselves yeah. as you. So where are you in terms of understanding what this IgE is actually doing when it's going wrong? In other words, is there a way of, of stopping it going wrong so that it then can begin to reattack the worm again? Because that's the answer to getting rid of the parasite, isn't it? Yeah, so a lot of the work we look at is understanding which antigens the IgE is binding to and at what point the... Ig actually sees them. So when an adult worm dies, a lot of the antigens which were previously hidden then become visible. And then these are present in other stages of the life cycle. So for example, when the worm's invading through the skin, those may actually be present on the surface and then you raise a response then. So the, the more we understand about the infection in human, the more we understand about how you defend against it. So does that mean as someone lives with their parasite load, their worms, and these worms slowly do die off of old age mm. and then expose the various factors they had previously hidden and you get this immune response does that mean that then the immune system does get better over time at attacking them and eventually someone does does clear the parasite and is then protected so we do see an age protection effect so the older people get the more protected they become against the parasite and there's also various other things to do with the occupation and how much they're exposed to the parasite throughout their life so if we can understand actually how it's doing this, because one of the things it's doing is fiddling with this IgE system, and IgE is very important with allergy, because when that goes wrong, we get all kinds of, of allergies. Does this mean then, if you can work out how the parasite subverts that system, you could basically do the same trick in people who have too much IgE because they're allergic to things and deal with the allergy problem? Yeah, so certainly what, what we're trying to do at the moment on the current projects I'm working on is we're really interested in what the IgE is actually binding to in the parasite and what we think is actually the targets that you see, that your allergens that you see, uh, look like parasites to your immune system. So that's why we're reacting against them. So we're looking at the moment at all of the known allergen structures and we're seeing if we can actually find examples of IgE binding to those in a parasitic infection. But what's intriguing is that if I have hay fever, for example, which I do, I definitely get symptoms. But if I have a parasite... I don't necessarily get symptoms because of the parasite being there, yeah. apart from the depleting effect it has and the debilitating effect it has on my body. Yeah. So there's obviously something else to it. Yeah, so there are factors that the parasites themselves also release which turn down the immune system and actually turn down the immune response. So some of our collaborators actually look at chemicals the parasite releases as it invades into the skin. And what you actually find is there are some of these molecules that are secreted as the parasite comes in and they suppress the local immune response. So you don't actually start to raise an immune response against that. But then there's, there's also another effect where people actually raise different immune responses to the parasites. Genetic diversity means some people respond to a parasite with a damaging reaction that looks very, very similar to severe allergy, whereas other people actually, when they start to have very, very heavy parasitic burdens, start to turn down their immune system to stop themselves from hurting themselves. Do we know why? 
Well, actually, mm, actually, no, we don't. <laughs> so the, there's there's almost certainly a genetic component to it, and there's almost certainly an exposure component to it. So it probably has a lot to do with when you're first parasitized, the state of your immune system as you're first parasitized, and then a whole host of other genetic factors, which means that you may well produce what we call a modified response, whereby you turn down your immune reactions, which is beneficial to, to to both you and the parasite. I mean, that's what the parasite wants that as well. They're very very greedy. They like to they want you all to themselves. They want to get in there and then stop other parasites from coming in and they also want to keep you as well as possible so we could consider that to be almost be the normal sort of response because this whole idea of the hygiene hypothesis where people who are infested with parasites have a lower risk of allergy is that real and and is there something really going on is it that the, the parasite actively being in a person suppresses the immune response in this way or is it that the environment in which people acquire parasites makes people less likely to develop allergies overall? I think it's much more complicated than we used to think it than we used to think it was. So there has been several studies that show that people are protected by having a worm parasite and the worm is doing something there's some cross reaction between their immune system. There are others that actually would show or suggest that having a worm might not be so great for you. Or it may not actually suppress any allergy at all. The key to understanding that is really understanding the similarity between the structures of the allergens and the structures of the antigens that are being reacted against on the parasite by the immune system. So how far away are you, do you think, from actually think nailing this so that we're in a position where we can say, well, we understand what the parasite does to get around the immune response and then we can turn the equation around and use this usefully to A, treat parasite problems and B, treat allergy problems? With, with the best will in the world, I'd like to say, oh, we're really, really close and we'd love to be able to say, yeah, we can, we can do this. But I think we need to understand a lot more about the interactions because they're really complicated, complex but fascinating interactions of how all this happens. Thank you very much. That's Ed Farnell. He is from the Department of Pathology at Cambridge University. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And because it's the Cambridge Science Festival, we're profiling some of the cutting-edge research that's happening in Cambridge University's pathology department this week. And still to come, the ingenious strategy that ensures that viruses don't infect the same cell twice. Plus, are there any forms of cancer that you can catch? Before then, let's find out what's been making scientific headlines around the world. And the space tourism industry might be about to take a knock before it's even got off the ground thanks to new research confirming that microgravity appears to be bad for your eyes. Are you a would-be astronaut, Kat? No, I get really bad travel sickness, so I just think space would be the end for me. <laughs> well, there's a paper which has come out in the journal Radiology this week. It's by Larry Kramer and his colleagues. He's at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. And this paper is a follow-up of a, an initial paper from last November, which they published in Ophthalmology. This time they've looked at 27 astronauts who have on average, 108 orbit days. And what these patients show in their MRI scans are significant changes to both their eyes but also their pituitary glands. So in two-thirds of them, there are changes. What they've done is to scan in thin slices right through the heads of these people. They find that in nine of the 27, there's evidence of increased deposition of fluid around their optic nerve sheaths. So the optic nerve is invested in connective tissue and there's fluid which is built up under that. In six of the astronauts, the backs of their eyeballs are flat, so when they leave Earth, their eyes are a globular, spherical shape. If you look in the paper, it's rather worrying, because the backs of the eyes, where the optic nerve goes into this eyeball, it's flat. 
and four of the astronauts have got bulges in their optic disc. This is the structure inside the eyeball. You can see if you look in with an ophthalmoscope where the nerves come out and then run into the retina. And in an additional three of the astronauts, there are tiny cavities opening up inside their pituitary glands. And this tallies with what NASA have said in the past that they've known for a long time, which is that people who spend a long time in space do report problems with their vision. People who do short space journeys about a third of the time report visual problems. And people who do long tours in space get problems 60% of the time. And these are problems with either an exacerbation of short or long sightedness. So what the researchers speculate in their paper is that this is a problem to do with fluid because if you are in microgravity for an extended period, the normal hydrostatic effect of gravity pulling water down in your body is lost and the water just builds up all around the body in various tissues. And this probably explains also why astronauts get a bit puffy-faced. If you look at them in pictures bobbing around on the International Space Station, their face is quite swollen, probably because of an accumulation of fluid. And what they think is happening is because in the brain it's a sealed space inside the vault of the skull, if fluid moves out of the bloodstream and collects in the tissue there, the tissue can't simply swell up like the astronaut's face, so it gets pressure put upon it. And as a result, structures change shape. And if this includes your eyeball, then the optics don't tend to work so well. And if it includes other things like your pituitary, then subsequently the nerves might not work so well. This does appear to be something that's important in people who spend extended periods of time in space. And so maybe the space tourism industry may or may not be impacted. But certainly if we are seeking to send people to Mars, which I know is a, a project that, that is on the table, that's going to be at least a year in space and that could be a problem. Mm. That's uh, put your dreams of going to space on hold, maybe, Chris. To move from space to something more down to Earth, the month of March is widely recognised as Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. This is a disease that affects nearly 40,000 men every year in the UK and many hundreds of thousands more worldwide. But while we have screening programmes, certainly here in the UK, for breast, cervical and bowel cancer, we don't have a national screening programme for prostate cancer, even though there's a blood test, the PSA test, which measures the levels of PSA, this is a protein produced by the prostate gland, and it can be raised in men with prostate cancer. Uh, why is that? Well, the reason that it's not used as a national test yet is because doctors simply don't know how reliable it is. And the problem is that PSA levels can be raised by a number of non-cancerous conditions, including sort of infections and just prostate overgrowth. So it's not really very specific for cancer. And there's also a small but significant proportion of men with prostate cancer who don't have high PSA levels. And finally, even if a man does have a raised PSA level and does have prostate cancer, it's hard to know whether it's an aggressive cancer that needs urgent treatment and along with that does come the risk of serious side effects or it's a slow-growing cancer that could just be monitored over time. But if the test does pick up an aggressive cancer at an early stage, it can save a man's life. Now, because of this confusion, many research teams around the world have been doing really big studies to find out whether the benefits of PSA testing across large populations outweigh the risks. But frustratingly, new results following up a very big study of prostate screening don't actually provide any firm answers. What a nuisance. So what do they show? Well, the results have come from the European randomised study of screening for prostate cancer, known as the ER. 
SPC, and it was set up in 1991 to just try and figure out the effectiveness of PSA testing. And it's looking at men in the Netherlands, in Belgium, as well as Sweden, Finland, Italy, Spain and Switzerland. Now, these new results, and they're following up more than 180,000 men after 11 years, have just been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In the study, the men were divided into two groups. One group were given PSA testing roughly once every four years, and the other group were left unscreened. But of course, they could go to the doctor if they noticed any symptoms. Now, the researchers found that the death rate from prostate cancer was just over 20% lower in the men who were PSA tested than the untested men. But after further calculations, the scientists actually showed that to prevent one death from prostate cancer during this 11-year period, more than 1,000 men would need to be invited for screening and nearly 40 cancers detected. Now, this chimes with results from a similar study published two years, well, from this same study published two years ago. And a similar study in the US has also found that PSA testing has relatively little impact on saving lives from prostate cancer, but may be leading to more men being more likely to have treatment that causes side effects for a cancer that may not be aggressive. And where does this leave the average person in the street? I would say probably more confused than ever now. Well, it is very confusing, and, and certainly knowing someone who has been through this issue with a PSA test, it, it's very confusing for men and their families. At the moment, men in the UK are advised to discuss PSA testing with their GP, who can tell them about the risks and the benefits. But this study and others like it around the world really highlight the problems with the PSA test and the fact that we urgently need more research to develop better tools for detecting these aggressive prostate cancers. So we need better research into bio markers, ways that you can tell what's an aggressive prostate cancer and what isn't. And if you can do this at an early stage, it will save lives and avoid men having to go through unnecessary treatment for tumours that aren't likely to be dangerous. Let's hope so. Kat, thank you. Also this week, how the intestine tells harmless food items from potentially harmful bacteria and parasites has been revealed by researchers in the US. Professor Mark Miller at Washington University in St. Louis was using a technique called two-photon imaging to study the intestines of living mice. These animals were special because one class of their immune cells had been made to glow so they could be seen easily. Now, these are the cells called dendritic cells, or DCs, and they're known as antigen-presenting cells because their job is to educate the immune system about what it should attack or ignore. But when Mark then fed these animals samples of sugars that had glowing labels so that he could follow how those food components got moved across the intestinal wall and introduced to the immune cells, he wasn't expecting to see quite what he did. The surprising finding was that the cell that does this is a highly secretory cell. It's called a goblet cell, and its primary function is believed to be secreting mucus that provides a barrier or a protection to the epithelial layer what we've found is that these cells, as they secrete, they also allow some of the luminal contents to be transported across the epithelium. So this is different from the process by which you would absorb nutrients or food. It's a way to deliver very concentrated amounts of an antigen to an antigen-presenting cell. And it's a new function that we've discovered for the goblet cell, which has been studied for a very long time. Now, you looked at one particular tagged antigen. Obviously, it's slightly more complicated when we're eating a balanced diet and there are lots of things coming in. So have you got any idea as to whether or not those goblet cells discriminate between the good guys and the things we want to educate our immune system to ignore and the bad stuff that we actually want the immune system to attack? Or do those goblet cells transfer everything and the immune system makes that decision? 
That's a fascinating question. So what we think is that they're transporting mostly small, soluble peptides. So these can be parts of a protein or intact proteins. They can also be things like sugar. So we're using dextran as one of our model antigens. So I think if there's any discrimination, it's that it would prevent something large like maybe an intact bacterium from getting across, but allow these small soluble antigens to actually get across. But on the other hand, once the antigen comes across the epithelium, the antigen-presenting cells themselves have specific receptors to take up sugars or certain proteins. So even if there's a lack of specificity at the goblet cell step, the dendritic cell itself will be better at taking up certain substances. And that could also lead to a different outcome in terms of an immune response. If I have a healthy gut and I'm just presenting normal foodstuffs, then I can understand that being an absolutely perfect mechanism. But what about when I get a dose of Deli Belly or Montezuma's Revenge? I get bacteria there that I shouldn't have or an overgrowth of, of even a parasite. Surely there will then be antigens going across the wall of the gut. How do you stop the immune system saying these are friendly? How do you make the immune system on that occasion decide to attack that foreign antigen? It's interesting that we've seen this function of goblet cells appears to be downregulated when you have a pathogenic infection. So it's as if the barrier, the mucosal barrier, tightens up. So that's one response. But the fact that the antigen is coming in with a pathogenic organism will cause inflammation. Pathogen-associated molecular patterns will, will stimulate dendritic cells in such a way that they promote an inflammatory immune response. So again, that would happen at the level of the, the dendritic cell. And what about in allergy states and other disease states? Mm-hmm. We know that there's an association. If you give very young kids big doses of broad-spectrum antibiotics that clear out lots of the bacteria that should be there, they're then much more likely to develop allergy and diarrheal states later in life. Have you got any clues from the mechanism you've spotted how that sort of thing might actually be manifest, why it happens? Um, yes, we, we do. So, for example, in the paper, we used germ-free mice that lack the normal flora that would colonize the small intestine. And in that case, uh, we saw quite a lot of, of antigen uh, being transported across. So that uh, experiment is showing that the normal flora or the bacteria in the gut may very well regulate this process. So depending on what species of bacteria are present or whether or not it's pathogenic or non-pathogenic, that could tie in very closely with how much of that antigen is delivered across the epithelium and change the character of the subsequent immune response. And are you in a position now to manipulate this system? Do you understand what the trafficking system is so that you can go in and intervene and stop things that might provoke an allergy or indeed in someone who has an established allergy, stop it presenting itself to the immune system so that person's allergy goes away? Yeah, we are definitely working in that direction. So it turns out that we think this transport function is directly related to goblet cell secretion. And of course, we have both agonists and antagonists to either induce secretion or inhibit secretion. So We are looking in various models right now to see how either shutting down this goblet cell-mediated antigen transport or upregulating it may affect outcomes in models of inflammatory bowel disease, for example. Professor Mark Miller from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and he published that work this week in the journal Nature. Nanoparticles used routinely in wastewater cleanups could encourage bacteria to breed superbugs, new research has shown. In fact, this could have major implications for the way that we process sewage. 
It's a paper in the journal PNAS this week by Zhigang Chu, who's at the Institute of Health and Environmental Medicine in Tianjin in China. And what he and his colleagues were interested in is looking at the chemicals that are added to wastewater to do things like heavy metal cleanups or just flocculate material. So they looked at alumina, aluminium oxide, also nanoparticles of titanium dioxide, silicon dioxide and even iron oxide. And they found that in all cases, adding these nanoparticles to bacteria dramatically increased the rate at which bacteria share genes amongst themselves. And they did a very simple test where they added to a small number of the bacteria a test genetic sequence. It was a plasmid called RP4. And they then incubate the bacteria with different concentrations of these nanoparticles. And they found that the aluminium-based ones were the most potent. The outcome was that they could demonstrate a 200-fold increase in the presence of these nanoparticles of the bacteria sharing these genetic sequences amongst themselves. And to find out why, they did some electron microscopic studies where they look at the bacteria and they show that they've got damage to the membrane and the cells are showing signs of being stressed. And what they think happens is that the nanoparticles stress the cells and so the bacteria respond by upregulating or switching on various self-preservation mechanisms which includes swapping bits of DNA around because if someone else has got a bit of DNA that might be beneficial and help you to resist this challenge than the threat you're facing, you want it. Now you could say if there was only a tiny amount of this stuff naturally out there in a sewage treatment work it probably wouldn't make much of an odds but they were demonstrating this effect at concentrations of these particles much lower than it actually used in the treatment of wastewater. And so they're saying that if this wasn't a test sequence of RP4 DNA, it was a whole load of genetic material which was resistance factors for various antibiotics, you could very easily begin to breed superbugs which are resistant to everything. So we need to look at how these nanoparticles might actually be affecting the way in which the microbial world respond to us and to each other. So why isn't it, Kat? Oh, they're, they're plucky little buggers, these bacteria, aren't they? <laughs> anyway, now with a roundup of other science stories hitting the headlines this week, including new research revealing how the drug lithium works in mental health conditions, here's Hannah Critchlow. Scientists have come up with a new way to anticipate previously hard-to-predict drug side effects. During their development, most drugs are tested in isolation, meaning a patient only takes one drug at a time. But in the clinic, most patients end up being prescribed mixtures of different drugs at once to treat a range of diseases. And predicting how these mixtures might lead to side effects has always been extremely difficult. But now, writing in Science Translational Medicine, researchers at Stanford University have used data from 4 million patients to design a statistical system that can spot when potential problems might arise, including between combinations of drugs in routine current use, as lead author Nicholas Tatanetti explains. We identified a potential interaction between thiazides that treats hypertension and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are antidepressants. And we associated them with an increased prolonged QT interval. And this is a clinical risk factor for heart arrhythmia. So it's a potentially important clinical variable. A new form of uranium could make radioactive waste easier to reprocess in the future. Generating electricity from nuclear power inevitably produces radioactive materials that need recycling or long-term storage. At the moment, the estimated cost of clearing up just the UK's accumulating stock of nuclear waste is £70 billion. 
But now, Edinburgh University chemist Polly Arnold and her colleagues, writing in the journal Nature Chemistry, have discovered a new way to make clusters of uranium, which may make these valuable radioactive materials easier to recycle. One of the things that happens when you process nuclear waste is you need to separate out all the different metal oxide components, the metal oxides. And things that can cause problems is when they cluster and form aggregates. But people don't know very much about how these form and then how to get rid of them. So the fact that we've seen this tiny beginning of a cluster suggests that it might lead us to think about new ways the clusters might form and then new ways to to deal with the nuclear waste processing that goes on at the moment. Scientists have uncovered how the drug lithium, which can help sufferers of bipolar disorder or manic depression, as it's also known, actually works. Lithium has been one of the main treatments for bipolar disorder for the last 60 years. But exactly how it works has remained a mystery. Now, writing in PLOS One and using cells cultured from mice, scientists have shown that lithium achieves its therapeutic effects by resetting the body's circadian clock which it does by switching off a signalling enzyme called glycogen synthase kinase 3-beta. In people with mood disorders, this enzyme has been shown to be overactive. And finally, flies deprived of sex turned to alcohol, scientists have shown this week. One group of male flies were offered multiple mating opportunities. A second group were repeatedly rejected by a group of already sexually satisfied females. Provided with a choice of foods that either did or didn't contain alcohol, the flies that had been repeatedly rejected were much more likely to opt for the booze-soaked dish. According to the author Dr. Jalit Ophir from Janelia Farm Research Centre, Virginia... This is a basic science study, so it tells us better about how the brain represents social experience in terms of rewards, and it has implications into understanding better the, the mechanisms that are involved in social reward, which is important to social-related disorders and also to addiction. And that study was published in the journal Science. That's Hannah Critchlow, who's probably gone down the pub right now, with our Naked Scientist News Flash. Transcripts and the references for all of our news this week can be found on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. Kat, thank you. Native white-clawed British crayfish are in trouble. Weakened by a parasite, this endangered species is being driven out of waterways by the North American signal crayfish. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham headed to Yorkshire to meet Alison Dunn and Neil Hadaway from the University of Leeds and, first, Martin Christmas from the Environment Agency. As they stood beside a stream, or, given that it's Yorkshire, a beck, Richard asked Martin what damage the American imposter has been doing. Signal crayfish, because they're bigger, they're more aggressive... They tend to outcompete for the same habitats, so white claw crayfish get pushed out. Signal crayfish also bring with them the uh, crayfish plague, which they can carry but aren't so susceptible to. But native crayfish uh, really do suffer from uh, plague outbreaks. It can wipe them out. So those are two of the conservation issues we've got. Also from the Environment Agency's perspective, signal crayfish are really good diggers, particularly in soft banks, and they can cause expensive problems in terms of undermining banks, bank collapses. Maintaining flood banks is is something that we invest a lot of money in every year. There are two things going on here, Alison. The the fact that these signal crayfish are causing damage, but also they're carrying this disease which affects the, the native crayfish. There are two different diseases that are important for who wins that competitive interaction. There's the plague that Martin referred to, which the signal crayfish have brought to this country and it kills the white clawed. 
The other thing that's fascinating that we're looking at is a parasite called porcelain disease that changes how the native crayfish is able to feed. It affects its behaviour and its ability to catch its prey and, as a knock-on effect, its ability to compete with the invader. This sounds a bit like the native red squirrel and, and the grey squirrel, the, the American invader. It is. It's, very, it's a very similar situation. The plague is analogous to the squirrel pox virus. But the effect that we're looking at, the parasite we're looking at, porcelain disease, is actually a native parasite. And it only seems to affect the behaviour of the native crayfish. It makes it more sluggish, less able to catch its prey, which Neil will tell us about. So what did your research involve? What were you looking at? This particular research that we did was some lab-based studies looking at the amount of food that the crayfish were eating. Uh, In particular, we were interested in comparing the amount of food that the invasive crayfish ate, the amount of food the native crayfish ate, and looking at the effect of the disease on the native. And what we found was that the invasive crayfish ate about 83% more food But not only that, it showed very little choice in what it was eating. The native crayfish with a disease uh, ate, on average, 30% less, and it also ate slower, so it was changing the way that it was eating. But not only this, it was also changing its choice of prey. So instead of going for fast-moving prey, the diseased crayfish were preferring animals that walked along the bottom as they were easy to catch. So really, the native crayfish was losing out food-wise on all counts? Definitely. The the native crayfish can't really compete when it comes to eating food with the invasive, and the disease really did knock it for six. So how do you use research like this, Alison? Well, understanding the processes going on in an ecosystem and understanding how important disease can be in modifying interactions, whether it's between an animal and its prey or between an animal and another one with which it competes, are important to understanding how ecosystems are made up. And biological invasions are enormously important economically and in terms of biodiversity across the whole globe. In terms of losing our diversity of animals and plants, they're second only after habitat destruction as being a cause of loss of species across the globe. So by understanding in this small beck how disease modifies the interaction between the native and the invasive, we could develop our understanding at a much broader level of invasive species and the importance of disease. So coming back to the the white-clawed British crayfish, does that mean you can save it? The white-clawed crayfish will continue to decline, both as a result of interactions with the signal and with the disease. But I think the Environment Agency have strategies to try and slow the spread of the signal crayfish and to develop isolated populations where we can conserve our native species. So all is not lost? No, all is not lost. Alison Dunn from the University of Leeds talking with Richard Hollingham. Richard was also speaking to Neil Hadaway and Martin Christmas. You can hear more in the latest Planet Earth podcast, which you can find on our website and at Planet Earth online. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And now returning to our Cambridge Science Festival-inspired Cambridge pathology theme this week... Returning to some of the tiniest organisms that are known to exist, and those are viruses. They've been very well studied over the last 50 years, so it's something of a surprise that no one had noticed that some viruses seem to be able to spread far faster than they ought to be able to. And now Cambridge virologist Jeff Smith and his team have discovered why. We study pox viruses, and 
the virus that we've used most in our lab is called vaccinia virus, and that was the virus that was used to eradicate smallpox from the whole world. One of the things that we started to do a few years ago was to look at how the virus spreads and how it seems to do so so quickly. And so we just made some very simple measurements uh, of the rate at which the virus would spread from one cell to another across a lawn of cells that were just growing in the lab. So what we found was it was spreading across each cell in just over one hour. And when we got that measurement, we really stopped and scratched our heads because it didn't make any sense because we knew that the virus takes at least five hours to replicate in each cell. So before you can make it any new virus particles after you've infected a cell, you have to wait five to six hours before the very first particles are made. But in your experiments, it appeared that the virus was spreading faster than it was being made. That's right. The numbers didn't add up. The virus was spreading about four or five-fold faster than could be predicted from what was known about its replication rate. So how did you take that forward? Because that's obviously a really fundamental and important finding. It could either be totally wrong or there's something very ingenious going on. Well, up to the time we did our study, it was thought that the viruses were only using the host cell transport machinery to accelerate the rate at which newly formed virus particles were being released from the cell in which they had been made. So you make the virus in the cell, then you use the cell's machinery to expel that virus onto an adjacent uninfected cell, and that's why you get a spread. Um, yeah, there are two parts to the virus hijacking the cell biology to accelerate spread. The first is that it uses a network of tubules called microtubules inside the cell which are the cell's normal transport machinery for moving cargo around inside the cell and the virus hooks up to this transport system and exploits it to get the newly formed virus particles out to the cell surface rapidly. So that's the first part and then once the virus gets to the cell surface it then will induce the formation of um, a, a protein in the cell called actin which is important for giving the cell its structure and it induces the polymerization of actin so that these growing actin filaments will physically propel the virus away from the cell surface towards uninfected cells that it can subsequently infect. So the virus comes out from the cell on almost like a stalk towards adjacent cells? That's right. I mean you can see these by videos if we um, if you label up the virus in a way, for, for instance, by fusing it to a fluorescent protein, you can follow the virus moving around inside cells and between cells um, by live video microscopy. They make very good pictures. I'm sure they do. So that much was known, and that doesn't actually explain how you could marry up the observation you made. The viruses are spreading much more quickly than they should with actually what was going on then. That's correct, because... The ability of the virus to exploit actin to push the virus particle away from the cell in which it had been made only happens very late in infection, about five or six hours or later. So that is too late to explain the very rapid spread from cell to cell. So there had to be another mechanism. And by looking more deeply into what the virus was doing, we found that once the virus had left the original cell in which it had replicated and it had then entered the adjacent cell, 
shortly after that cell was infected, the virus expressed two proteins, which we knew formed a complex, and that complex is transported to the cell surface, which essentially marked that cell as being infected already. And the consequence of that was that when additional viral particles trying to reinfect or superinfect that same cell came into contact with that complex on the cell surface, that induced the formation of additional actin uh, tails which repulsed the uh, superinfecting virions and pushed them away towards uninfected cells. Gosh, so it's almost like a virus comes in lands on a cell that has already been infected but isn't yet making virus particles, can detect that the cell is infected and then bounces off in the direction of other potentially infectable, so far uninfected cells. That's exactly right. And um, it's almost as if the virus infection is marking the uh, newly infected cell as infected and saying to the new additional viral particles go away, there's no point coming here, I'm infected already you need to go elsewhere and in fact this is a common theme in virology, um, many viruses have mechanisms by which they restrict the reinfection of a, an already infected cell but what was different in this study was that the virus didn't just stop the virus particles re-entering the same cell, they physically repelled them. So as you say, they bounced or surfed across the surface of the infected cell until they would come to a cell that was uninfected, which there was no restriction upon them infecting. Given that this gives the virus an advantage, and you now know how it does it, disabling it could therefore be quite a good target to treat these viruses with drugs. Indeed so. Um, we know, for instance, that if we remove the genes which encode the proteins that enable this rapid spreading mechanism to take place, number one, the virus spreads much more slowly in cultured cells, and it is also avirulent. It can no longer induce disease. So that one could build attenuated vaccines, perhaps, in this way. That's one angle. And a second one would be to design um, molecules which would interfere with this spreading mechanism. And in fact, you could take the parts of the proteins which mediate this mechanism themselves. And if we were to produce a large amount of that protein in soluble form, that would compete with the receptor bound on the cell surface and so prevent the rapid spread that the cell-bound protein would otherwise induce. Fascinating. Jeff Smith from Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani. A Berrigan Betts in Second Life who's listening to the programme says, regarding uh, astronauts having dodgy eyesight, maybe we should send people who have bad eyesight already into space and then they might come back with normal vision. Hmm. Given the price of laser eye treatment, actually, might not be a bad deal. We've got a question, a couple of questions for Estee here from Second Life. Firstly, Nat Spirit says, how many strains of MRSA are there? And Android Neox says, how do you know you're getting the sequence of just one strain of bacterium rather than a mixture? 
Okay, well, those are both very good questions. Um, In answer to the first one, um, we don't actually know how many strains of MRSA there are. It's an incredibly diverse organism, and there are likely to be hundreds of thousands, really. But but as as we haven't sequenced all that many, we don't know exactly how many there are in the world. It's not a new problem, though, is it? It's something that's been around for quite a few years, 30, 40 years. Absolutely, but the the previous typing methods that we have are, are a relatively blunt instrument, and they can group them into groups of strains, but we don't know how many individual strains there are. What about the the other question, which is, I think, very important, which Mm. is if you've got an infection, is it likely that it's just one bacterial strain or subtype doing Mm. that, or are they usually mixed? Well, I mean, at the moment, uh, the whole genome sequencing that we're doing, we can only do at the moment from a pure bacterial culture. So we usually know in that situation that we pick a colony or we pick one or two colonies from a plate, and we can be pretty certain that it's a single um, strain, so a single bacterial isolate. However... Um, patients can obviously present with polymicrobial infections and again we'd be able to tell that from looking at the agar plate there'd be bugs that look different on the plate Um, but at the moment when we sequence them we pick one or two colonies of identical looking organisms and we know then that we're, we're, we're sequencing one strain. Steve Gale has got in touch on Facebook says how does HSV1 virus the herpes simplex virus that causes cold sores hide between times when it's active it hides inside nerve cells Uh, What it does is exist as a small piece of DNA, which is just the genetic material for the virus, hiding inside the nerve cell's nucleus alongside the DNA in that cell. And as a result, it's out of reach of the immune system. And because it's not making any proteins that the cell can display on its surface, the immune system doesn't tend to touch it. And it can then use the genetic recipe book in that DNA to come back to life later, produce new virus particles that go back down the nerve cell, come out on the skin and produce an infectious lesion that is unsightly, but it's also highly infectious and you can pass it on. Ed, here's one which I think um, probably is is in your neck of the woods because Valerie's emailed in to say, what are the common illness infections caused by uh, various pathogens? I would say uh, parasites must be top of the list, aren't they? Yeah, I think there's very, very high up the list and certainly worms at least. So um, a great quote from a textbook in the 1930s about nematodes, the roundworms, and the uh, the guy said, if you removed everything from the face of the earth, said not just humans, all plants, animals, and you knew enough about every single nematode there was, remove everything else, leave just the worms behind, there would be an outline of everything. They're everywhere. They're in the soil, in plants, trees, animals, humans, parasitised, living free. They're, they're incredibly ubiquitous. Most toddlers, I think, yes. pick, up, <laughs> pick up things, don't they? And what about TB? essay because I mean this is serious. I would have to argue from the bacteriology side that one in three people in the world is infected with mycobacterium tuberculosis so I think you know that's a bacterium that that causes tuberculosis and uh, would have to be high up there on the list of uh, common pathogens. Andrew Roberts has emailed in and says great show in regard of STD sexually transmitted infections is it possible that virus strains or types can combine in a host say a human and create a more destructive dangerous or communicable super virus I would argue that definitely happens with HIV. Absolutely. I mean, so there was, a, there was a case report, I think, in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago of exactly that, a man who'd presented with HIV infection um, and then was subsequently reinfected with another strain and had a, a faster disease progression and, and, and died, in fact. Because once you've got one strain, if you add another one on top, then they can share genes between the viruses and you end up with a virus that's got all of the worst bits of both. Absolutely. Estee, thank you. Well, talking of hard-to-tackle questions, uh, we have a contagious question of the week for you. And here with it is Hannah Critchlow. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. 
This week, we find out what might link sex, biting and receiving. Hi, this is Brandon from San Francisco. I'm wondering, is there any possible way you could get cancer from someone else? So, can you catch cancer? Let's kick off with sex. And yes, cancer can be caused directly by infection with sexually transmitted viruses, including the human papillomavirus that causes cervical, anal and throat cancers. With more... Margaret Stanley in the Department of Pathology in the University of Cambridge. Human papillomaviruses are very, very common infections. And there's a set of viruses that infect the genital tract and the oral cavity in men and women. 80% of us will have had or will get or have the infection. So it's a very, very common infection. But only about 0.001% of people who are infected will actually develop the cancer. Now, the cancers they develop in women's cancer of the cervix, second commonest cancer in women worldwide. In men, a rare cancer, cancer of the anus. And that's common in gay men. But also cancer of the tonsil, both in men and women, but much more common in men than women, five times more common. And I have to say, increasing in incidence. Now, what's important is how you get this virus, sexually transmitted infection. And so with changing sexual practices, behavior, then these cancers are actually becoming more common. And what about catching cancer through donated organs? I'm James Newberger. I'm Associate Medical Director at Organ Donation and Transplantation in NHS Blood and Transplant. In very, very rare cases, it is possible that the organ that is transplanted will contain cancer cells from the donor. We do our best to screen for this and prevent it, but we cannot prevent it entirely, however good our screening tests are. The second point is that immunosuppression which nearly all transplant recipients require lifelong, does carry an increased risk of some cancers. And it's important that both the patients and their doctors are aware of this increased risk. And there's also a risk of picking up cancer through viruses in blood, like hepatitis B and C, which can trigger cancers in some individuals and can be passed on in donated blood. Although, thanks to screening programmes, the risk of this in developed countries is very low. And what about biting? Well, Tasmanian devils catch cancer on the face through biting, physically transferring cancerous tissue from one devil to the next. With more... Hello, my name's Elizabeth Murchison. I'm at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute near Cambridge. So it's actually one single cancer which is transmitted from one animal to another. The devil's cancer is not recognized or rejected by the new host's immune system, even though it's a foreign graft. There are some very rare examples of cancers which are transmitted in this way in humans, and these are often associated with mothers getting cancers that are then transmitted through the placenta to the fetus, and even more rarely vice versa, the, the fetus develops the cancer which is transmitted to the mother. So, Tasmanian devils catch cancer through biting, whilst humans can catch cancer through sex, transfer between mother to fetus, and there's also a small risk of catching cancer from a donated organ. Thanks to Dr Elizabeth Murchison, Professor James Neuerberger and Margaret Stanley for clearing up that contagious cancer question. Passing on to our next question with a listener who wonders about the inequality of the temperature scale. Well, I'm Bronwyn Hicks and I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. If we have a lower limit on temperature that is absolute zero, 
where it's so cold that nothing happens. Why do we not have an upper limit? Send your thoughts to Chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Thanks, Hannah. That's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. And that is it for this week. Next week we're going nuclear. We'll find out how to keep nuclear power plants running smoothly and look at some new reactor technologies. Thank you very much to our guests this week, Estee Torok and Edward Farnell and Jeff Smith. And thank you to our production team, Ben Vassler, Hannah Critchlow and Tom Simpkins. Have a great week and we'll see you again next week. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. 